The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. Elder P, P Nate, I like switching it up sometimes for you. In Mini Garage Mahal, Wetsy is not here today, which is always a bit sad for us. Yeah, um, we, it's not there's the always a hole in our heart and generally a lower quality in our sound. <laughs> <laughs> a, lower, a lower quality of life yeah. and we have a hole in our heart. So you just made me remind it. Did anybody ever give you that like gospel presentation of you have a hole, a Jesus-sized yeah, hole, Jesus in your size hole in your heart? And yeah. I was like, you know what's funny? When I first saw that, I thought that was true. Like, and yeah, so I was like, that's I was how like, God created the world. Like, it was like, oh, like, I, th- is that why my heart is black and I hate everything? It took a long time for me to realize, like, and I realized I was like 19. It was like, I have a hole in my heart. Like, I remember so. the, um, that old analogy of like, you are a hand and Jesus is like a glove. No, no, maybe you're the glove and Jesus is the hand. I don't know. But either way, it's like, you know, it's the only thing that's meant to fill you kind of thing. And, those are all just really stupid analogies. Yeah. I think that one's kind of gay. Like, yeah. So. <laughs> well, and part of my issue is we don't emphasize obedience enough and particularly to men. And this is probably, I mean, going back to our talk about the feminization of the church is like when you're using those kinds of like gay analogies about like finding your other half and all that kind of stuff, it does make it sound like you're dating Jesus. And I think men respond much better to like, he's the king, do your duty, obey the king. Anyway, so we should do our duty and tell people who we are. Yeah. Hey, good transition. Way to get us back on track. Very rarely are you the guy getting us back on track, but here you are. <laughs> that's, what like, I, that's what I was that's thinking, too. That's like, your oh, worth. That's the first time. Um, yeah. So we're the Rebels. Uh, we're part of the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. We are also in association with the Ezra Institute. And so we would encourage you, especially right now, if you do not subscribe, if you use a podcast platform outside of the Fight, Laugh, Feast pub TV app, then we would encourage you to go and subscribe to the Ezra podcast for cultural reformation, because uh, we are going to be blending our feeds at some point in the future. So we're just going to keep telling people that until they listen, but go and listen. Joe Boot and uh, Michael Thiessen just dropped a really good episode on fatherhood, talking a little bit about some of the Alistair Begg stuff. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're not going to exhaust the Alistair Begg stuff, but we kind of want to use this to circle around to something that we missed talking about before that I think is worth talking about. Before that, there's two things I just wanted to make people aware of. Number one, we have uh, the Three Big Questions Seminar coming up. This is at Crossroads Church in Ingersoll, Ontario. It's on March 8th, which is a Friday evening. I would just encourage you, go to the3bigquestions.ca. It's all one word, except the three is the number three, the3bigquestions.ca. This is in partnership with the Ezra Institute, Answers in Genesis Canada, and The Cross Current. We are putting on a seminar to equip Christians to answer the three big questions in conversational evangelism. So where do we come from? What's the meaning of life? What happens after we die? 
We're equipping you to be able to evangelistically answer those questions and get into conversation about each one. Which one are you answering? What's the meaning of life? Oh, yeah, you'll, so. be, you'll be good at that one. Thank you. Um, yeah, Cal Smith, Answers in Genesis, is pretty equipped to talk about where do we come from. Corey, the evangelist, is all about hellfire and brimstone. So he'll tell, he'll tell everybody what happens after we die. But yeah, Ezra Institute, talking about expanding the borders of Christ's kingdom, all of Christ for all of life kind of stuff. Uh, we'll be talking about the meaning of life. The only other thing I want to say, it actually is a little bit before that, is the Right Response Conference. It's down in Taylor, Texas on uh, March 1st through 3rd. Joe Boot is one of the keynote speakers there alongside Doug Wilson and Joel Webin. I know Brian Sauvé will be there doing music, and I think Eric Kahn is doing a breakout session. So it's a great lineup. I will be there. I'm not doing anything in terms of speaking, but I will be manning the Ezra resource table. So if you're a fan of the podcast, you happen to be in Taylor, Texas, it's going to be a fantastic conference. Come and say hi to me, introduce yourself, and I'd love to meet you. Chris is going to be there as well. Yeah, take me out for barbecue. So So you can come... You know, laugh at me for being chained to the Ezra resource table, and then you and Chris can go out for barbecue. We, we will bring ribs back, but oh. mostly just like what we haven't finished. <laughs> you know what's funny, though, is I would eat it, and then I would get like barbecue sauce all over my hands while I'm handing people books. So I would just ruin all of Ezra's resources. You know, you know what's funny about like conference tables? Like, obviously, we're pretty connected to Ezra. I work for them. You, a wor- bit. You, you do work for them. So, like, that's the thing. But like, I always get excited about the book tables, yeah. and then I realize I actually think i have every book that they produce so like i'm like is there some new ones you know who's so, even more of a, a book feed like after our episode last week I, I, we had lots of people who were like man you guys read a lot yada yada you know who's more of a book fiend than either of us who your wife oh my wife kills books she reads a lot i think we both read more than her this year but like the amount that she's exponentially grown and how much she reads the complexity of the books that she's read but then also like She's in that stage where like her love for reading, she's always had a love for reading, but it's exponentially grown so that she buys way more books than she actually reads. So like you're in the sweet spot, my friend, where it's just like the one thing your wife will never say you're spending too much money on is books. If, that's that's if, a that's a blessing. She encourages the amount of money I spend on books because it benefits her. Right. Um, but then the best part is that like she then spends money on books and she doesn't buy books that I already have. So it's like, I get double the, like I realize it's all big one pop, but I mean, she buys books that I didn't have access to or didn't think she to buy. She uses her allowance on books for you. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> um, but then the great thing is then like, you know, some books now I don't count these on my Goodreads, but there are books that she reads and she just tells me the whole chapter. And so I get like little chapters reviews. So she almost like she pre vet some books that I'm like, I'm kind of interested I don't need in that, that one anymore. Yeah. And so I kind of get it. Like, yeah, that's it, pretty great. It's it's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. Okay, um, so here's what we wanted RC to sprawl at the moment. Like, nice. Yeah, RC sprawl is worth investing a lot of time in. Okay, here's what we wanted to talk about today. So obviously, if you listen to the Ezra podcast, which you ought to, I was on there last week with Joe Boot, and we were talking about the Alistair Begg fiasco. If you haven't heard it, it's Such basically. A good word yeah. for this. I mean, so he has a radio program where people can call in and ask questions, and he advised a grandmother to go to her granddaughter's trans wedding and to buy them a gift and to sort of surprise them with love. And I mean, he he made a couple caveats. You know, do they know that you don't approve of the lifestyle? Do they know of your commitment to Jesus? Then I think you can go. We talked about it ad nauseum on the Ezra podcast, so we're not gonna spend any time talking about that in particular. 
But the big idea of our criticism is, first of all, I mean, it's it's terrible advice. It's dead wrong. And I don't think Jesus would have given any sort of advice. I think Romans 1 is the go-to place where I would go. And Paul talks about condemning those who celebrate that kind of wickedness. And going to a wedding ceremony, as we talked about in the Ezra podcast, is celebrating. It is lending your support. You become one of the witnesses to this covenant union. And if it's between two dudes or two girls, regardless of how they dress, it is not a wedding. It is not a marriage. So we talked about that at length. But one of the things that it's done is it sort of divided a lot of the Christian circle. Because Alistair Begg, let's be honest, he's been a faithful preacher for a long time, right? Yeah, he's, something he's, like 30 years at a church. Yeah, like he's been preaching good theology and, and all that kind of stuff. One of my criticisms of him, like with much of Big Eva guys, is that they have no way of applying their theology to everyday life. They don't have any sort of cultural application. Mm. That's one of our criticisms for many of the people who criticize us for talking too much about cultural issues and politics and all that kind of stuff. Generally, it comes from that preach nothing but Christ, and what they mean is just preach substitutionary atonement sermons and sanctification sermons don't touch the culture. And I just don't think that's biblical in any way, shape, or form. The gospel always touches the culture. I've heard somebody describe our theology as sovereignty on steroids kind of thing. And like, <laughs> the funny thing is it was like, I looked at theirs, it was like their sovereignty to them ends with election. You know what I mean? Like right. God has no, yeah, no, right. no say in the culture. It's like, no, the answer, the answer is he has sovereignty over everything, yeah. including we don't not preach on salvation, but we also understand that God has something to say about day-to-day life. It's just funny if you read the 10 commandments, like the first four are very clear, like our relationship towards God. And then it's very much cultural. Don't yeah. murder, don't steal, don't yeah. this is bear how you false interact. witness. This like, is what it looks like to love your neighbor. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's like, it always ends with the like outworking of the heart conditions that are right before the Lord. So it's just a weird thing that we get to get accused of. So here's the direction I sort of want to take with this, because as I'm seeing responses to the backlash that Beg has received, I can categorize it in a couple of ways. Like, first of all, there's the group of people who are sort of progressive Christians, right? Who their answer is sort of essentially like, we should be affirming of these things or just defending him in his view in some way, shape or form. The second crowd, though, is that sort of Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners crowd, right? So it's like Jesus would have gone to it. Like, Beg never said this, but... They are saying, like, he would have gone to the trans wedding because he ate with tax collectors and sinners. And then the third crowd, so just a heads up, Michael Thiessen and Joe Boot did a podcast response to some of the backlash, and, and Alistair Begg has doubled down on his statement, and they went really hard after that second category of Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So what we want to do is talk about the third objection to people who are calling out Alistair Begg, and that is, you're being mean to Alistair Begg, (laughs) essentially, in so many words. And what this highlights is, for anybody who, uh, I guess, follows some of the pastors and the teachers and resources that you and I often look at as helpful for ministry and for personal sanctification— Things like what's coming out of Moscow and, and Canon Plus and, and I think Right the Response, Institute, like, the Ezra Institute, like this kind of stuff, Christian Concern in the UK, that crew often gets labeled as mean-spirited, divisive, always attacking, tone, right? Our tone is bad. You and I have done several podcasts over the years on this. But it's worth us bringing it up again, because one thing that was kind of going on in the culture that we didn't really get a chance to talk about, just because we had other things that we had kind of committed to to wading into, was the Moscow mood, 
you followed a little bit of this whole Moscow mood thing. Obviously, with the growth of Canon Plus and the influence of Doug Wilson and Joe Rigney, who used to be the, I think, the president or the academic dean of Bethlehem Baptist uh, Seminary, associated with John Piper, moved to Moscow and took up a job at uh, Newt St. Andrews. With more and more of that happening, the sort of embargo that Big Eva has placed on Moscow and Doug Wilson... And I think I can use that phrase because we've used that at the Ezra Institute for a long time. There's there's a bit of an embargo on Joe's stuff as well. I think Joe is a brilliant mind, and I think he should be invited to speak at far more conferences than he does. But part of it is because of this, this idea of the Moscow mood. And so Kevin DeYoung, who is a guy that you and I have both really liked for years. One of, one of my favorite sermons I've ever listened to is, uh, I, I'm going to butcher the title of it, but it's basically... A sermon on God's immutability, on the fact that he doesn't change. It's like 45 minutes or whatever, and it's brilliant. Like I did a study through with my small group a couple years ago on the, I called it the 10 sermons that shook the world kind of thing. Like, and I use mostly modern ones because obviously you just pick 10 Jonathan Edwards one, but, and one of his was on there. So like, I really like Kevin Young. Yeah. I've been helped by books like The Hole in Our Holiness. Early on, the first thing I ever read of him is Why We Love the Church by Two Guys Who Shouldn't. And he Mm kind of really went after the post-millennial crowd of kind of people walking away from church. Uh, He co-authored that with Ted Kluck. He wrote a really helpful book, What Does the Bible Really Say About Homosexuality? And it was rock solid. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's got like nine kids. Like he's our kind of guy, right? Like he's a solid, solid biblical teacher. But he... he, Got this wrong though. (laughs) um, Well, so he came up with this uh, this article for Clearly Conformed. It's a blog post. It's called On Culture War, Doug Wilson and the Moscow Mood. And it's interesting because he wrote this sort of unprovoked yeah. just as a sort of like hey lots of people ask me about this now so let me talk about it yeah i don't know the behind the scenes i don't know if kevin young reached out to doug wilson i'm assuming guys like kind of on that level so to speak probably have access to each other in a way that like maybe i like a guy like me wouldn't kind of thing yep so i don't know if he, he reached out to like hey this is what i'm thinking like do you want to talk about this before I do? But it seemed to me very unprovoked. Yep. I look at it as even if people in your congregation, because like nowadays, you know, we are connected and we are able to listen to people who, you know, I'm never going to sit under their authority in their church. I don't go to Moscow. I'm probably yep. never going to live in Moscow. I believe Kevin Young's in New York. That would be true for his people too. But so this is all kind of like, what do you think about this? Wouldn't the response as a pastor of like, I'll just ask you, you're the senior pastor of our church. If people came up and said, hey, what do you think about X church down the road? I don't think I would ever hear you answer the question about like, about something about that church without at least having talked to that church. It would generally be something like, I've spoke to them about this or or whatever. And so it just seemed very, lack of a better term, stupid to like poke the bear here. Like, Well, it was interesting because at the end of his article, he basically says like, I don't want to get drawn into a battle here with his followers, but, and then he fires shots. So it's kind of like, I don't want them to shoot back at me, but I'm going to fire shots at them, right? Respectful, right? He didn't resort to ad hominems or any, any of that kind of stuff. He, he was generally respectful. But basically, his criticism was that Moscow's appeal is largely visceral or emotional rather than intellectual, and that people are often drawn to cultural, political posturing, culture building, and culture warring moods and vibes, And so this is a quote from his article. He says that whole, we are not giving up. We are not giving in. We can do better than negotiate the terms of our surrenders. The infidels have taken over our Christian laws, our Christian heritage, our Christian lands, and we are coming to take them back. And he basically says like that mood is appealing to people, 
but he's worried about the long-term effects of winning them with that. And you and I have often said what you win them with is what you win them to. So basically, Kevin DeYoung's critique comes down to if you win them with that mood, then you have to foster that mood. And he goes on to say, this is another um, quote where he says, there are serious problems with the long-term spiritual effects of admiring and imitating the Moscow mood that is often incompatible with Christian virtue, inconsiderate of other Christians, and ultimately inconsistent with the stated aims of Wilson's Christendom project. So that's sort of his take on it. I think that on the AmericanReformer.org, Joe Rigney did a beautiful response. And I, I think, you know, Doug, to his credit, he also on blog and Mayblog, he, uh, his, it's called My Rejoiner to Kevin DeYoung. And I thought he was very respectful and he responded to Kevin DeYoung quite well. So you can follow all that stuff and you, if you're wanting to think about the Moscow mood. We don't want to so much talk about the Moscow specifics. and Kevin DeYoung and, and which side we take or anything like that. I want to talk about this idea of the Moscow mood. And I want to talk about this idea of... of bad tone, what you win them with is what you win them to, and the kind of atmosphere of a church being what draws people in. Because I would say that we get accused of this often. We're in southwestern Ontario, so we don't make American news quite as much. That would be a criticism that we often hear about Crossroads, that we're a bunch of rebel rousers, that we like the cultural wars, that we attract people who, you know, want to fight and maybe that the theology and the love for Christ doesn't go as deep as it should. First of all, I would say I, I patently reject that. I think that's absolutely wrong about our church. And I think that most people who have come and visited our church legitimately have seen that that's not true. I think it's a community of people who love God, love his word, and have a desire to be obedient to King Jesus. I just think that one of the things that we recognize is that unlike the Pharisees who were chastised by Jesus for not understanding the signs of the times in which they lived— we, I think, as well as Moscow and Doug Wilson, have accurately understood the time in which we live, and I think have been tried to be faithful, right? There is a massive difference between a Christian man who's called to be faithful in peacetime versus a Christian man who's called to be faithful in wartime, right? It's a, just a different mentality. And plenty of great art, whether it's books, film, whatever, have been made about that guy who's made for wartime and having to live in peacetime or vice versa, right? So, I think what this comes down to is what we fundamentally believe about what's going on in the culture around us and what the ultimate goal and aim of the Christian gospel is. Yeah. Obviously, I don't think you can look at what's happening in our culture, particularly south of the border, which at the time of recording, it looks like verge of civil war. Yeah. And that's largely bet between the right and the left. And yeah. like, but even boil that down, it's between liberalism and conservatism, but it's really a Judeo-Christian values versus non-Judeo. Like if you yeah. if you boil it all down, that's what they're yeah. that's really what they're fighting about or going to be fighting about. And there are people playing on the wrong teams on both ends. Hundred percent. Right? So, like, so like I, I just want to be clear: Christianity does not equal conservatism. No, not at all. And liberalism does not equal atheism. But generally, that is true. Yeah. Generally speaking, it's a generalism. But there are conservatives who are not Christians, and there are liberals who are Christians. But what I would say is that unknowingly, right, those Christians who find themselves on the liberal side of things, I think that they are the Christians who have been taken captive, as Paul says, by hollow and deceptive philosophies. And even the elect can be led astray, Scripture tells us. And that can be done because of hollow and deceptive philosophies. And so I'm not saying liberalism equals atheism. 
But I do think that you're generally right, that the war between the right and the left is a manifestation of the larger war, which is a spiritual war 100%. between Christ and the agents of chaos. Yeah. I was just going in terms of like, you can't look at the world right now and, and say this is peacetime. We are engaged in the war, which right. means we need the wartime generals to lead us, not the peaceful politicians. You know what I mean? We need the Doug Wilsons. We need the uh, Joe, Joe, Rigney's. Boots, Joe Rigney's. We yeah. need them to be the ones that are at the forefront of the cultural fight because they're the ones that are equipped to have the cultural fight. And so there's just a couple of quotes that come to my mind when I'm, when I'm thinking about this. There's, there's this one that I love is like, never fight until you have to, which I would criticize Kevin DeYoung for even attacking the, right. the inside the body at this point in time, but never fight until you have to. But when it's time to fight, you fight like you're the third monkey on the ramp to Noah's Ark and it's starting to rain. And it's the idea is like, <laughs> whose quote is that? I have no idea. <laughs> That's amazing. Like it's, it's, it's like brother, it's starting third to rain. Third monkey um, on the ramp. But like the idea there is just simply like as Christians, I actually think we're, we are meant to live when we can at possible at peace, but this is not peacetime with the world around us. We never make peace with, right. with the enemy. The enemy, like we are to conquer them. You know what I mean? And so we're at war with them because by default, they hate our position. We hate theirs or, or else you have a bigger problem there. And so we're, we're in a fight right now and it's our job to fight to win this battle. Regardless of how you think that turns out and all that stuff, you, there's no category in, in our faith to say that we make peace with the abortionists, that we right. make peace with the communists or whatever, like whatever, throw in whatever it is, because those are villains to the gospel. Like there's a funny thing is like we all get this mentality too, where it's like, um, and again, this is a, I think this is a Doug Wilson quote that I'm going to butcher, but Jesus tells us to love our enemies. To love our enemies means we have to have some enemies, you know yeah. I mean? which means to even fulfill that command of Christ presupposes that we have some people who we are against, yeah. who are our our enemies. And so we, so that we can show that love of virtue. And then I, so I think the real debate comes is what is actual love? Yeah. Is it loving to tolerate like Alistair Begg and say, Oh, go and celebrate this with them. You can show their, your love. Or is it love to be like your worldview is stupid and it's going to lead you to burn in eternity. Cause yeah. I'll say what I would rather you tell me. Right. The verse that came to mind as you were talking is from second Corinthians chapter two, where it says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ." So the idea here is Paul is pulling from Roman imagery, and when Rome would go and conquer a new people group, the armies of Rome would be led by the generals back into the great city, and all of the spoils of war would be in triumphal procession in the parade behind them. And that means the spoils of war, the trophies that they cut off their victims— uh, it would include the slaves that they brought in to, to fuel the, the work of Rome— and it would include all kinds of things. And the idea there is like, for those who are receiving the spoils of war, the people in the crowd who are receiving this great parade and the gifts, it smells like life. This feeds our culture. To those who are slaves being led to a life of servitude, it smells like death, right? This is an awful thing. And that's the idea there is like, 
when Christ is on display, people love it or they hate it. And they love it or they hate it based on the condition of their heart. My point in all of that, in saying all of that, is that you're absolutely right in what what's the definition of love, but it's also what's the definition of all things, right? We've often said the culture of war is a battle for the dictionary. Who gets to define what? And I would say the Bible gets to define things. That's why God spoke to us with words, and that's why the redefining of words is so hideous, right? Yep. We've talked about the redefinition of marriage. It's between a man and a woman for life. We've redefined that to mean all kinds of different things, but that's God's word. He gets to define it. Same thing with love, and I would even say same thing with good witness. When Alistair Begg doubled down, and it even comes up in Kevin DeYoung's article criticizing the Moscow mood, is the idea of being a good witness. Well, what is a good witness? Because they're presupposing, they're preloading the definition of good witness as being liked by people outside the church. We aren't liked by them. We won't be liked by them. We smell like death to them, right? And so the idea is like a good witness is not equal to a liked witness. A good witness is equal to a faithful witness. Faithful to whom? Faithful to God, to his word, to his law. Yeah, a true witness that you could even say, right? So like you think about like, again, this is just a perversion of reality. If we use the courtroom analogy, too many people in Big Eva, too many people in the Christian faith think that God is the one in the defendant's seat, right? And it's like, no, no, God is the judge in the situations. The Christians are the accusers of the world and the world is the defenders or however you want to. So the good faithful witness is the one that testifies truly. Whichever side of that aisle you're on is say where the world is the defender at this point or whatever, they hate that witness by default because that witness is testifying against them. Right. So by default, they hate our witness when we're true, when we agree with them and want to be liked, they're going to love our witness. They don't hate the witness at that point. Did you Absolutely. track with that? Yeah. It's funny you bring up Alistair Begg. This is why I actually think I agree, I agree with the people who are calling him that he needs to repent of his issue because it isn't loving to partake in a lie. Send them somebody to go to a translate. You're actually partaking in the lie now. Yes. And even if they know where you stand on the thing, you're still affirming something that just isn't true because God said marriage is between a man and a woman. That's right. It isn't between two men. It isn't between two women. It isn't between two people who are pretending to be two different things. So there's a difference when you go to that wedding versus, say, go to, going to a non-Christian wedding between a man and a female or whatever. I'm not sure where you fall on all those things. I might ask you, actually. But there is a difference there that we have to say the more loving thing to do is just be like, I'm not going to partake in that lie because it's actually sinful now for me to partake in something that is a lie. Yeah, it's not, it's not, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's not good. You mentioned earlier the, 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 the one camp of people who are like, well, Jesus ate with the tax collectors and sinners, but there's nothing wrong with eating, right? right. There's no sin there <laughs> right. in eating. He's not lying about the fact that food exists, right? He's sharing a meal with sinful people. Guess what? Every meal you've ever had has been doing the exact same thing, regardless if it's with a trans person or not. Every meal you share is with, with a sinful person, but the eating there is you're not lying about eating. We need to eat. Right. Going to a trans wedding is like the thing that you're there for. The ceremony is now a lie because of what you, what you're celebrating isn't real. As Doug Wilson said, it's a mirage. You know what I mean? Yes. It's not, it's not a real thing. So there is a difference that that one side erring on the side of, we need to be a good witness in love are failing to grasp that you're like, well, yeah, but we're also not allowed to lie. And that's actually a violation of the ninth commandment. You're now giving a false testimony of what's true in the world against your neighbor because you're actually saying that that's fine 
by buying them a gift, celebrating all that stuff. So yeah, don't go to the weddings. Would you, don't go to the weddings. Can I just ask some practical questions? I'm go sure Christians want to know these things. So obviously we've landed in the plane. We're not going to a trans wedding. Would you go to a gay wedding? No, it's no. not a wedding. It's not a wedding. Not a marriage. Would you go to a non-Christian wedding? I would. Would you yeah. do it? Do the wedding? Yeah, like perform the ceremony and whatnot. I have performed a marriage between two non-Christians, professing non-Christians. So I've also said no to plenty of weddings. I've said no to doing weddings of individuals that I don't think had biblical grounds for divorce and therefore don't have biblical grounds for remarriage. I've said no to do weddings for individuals that I thought were unevenly yoked because I saw the evidence of regeneration in one of them, but not in the other. That was my next question. Yeah, but, and I wouldn't even go to that wedding. I wouldn't go to a wedding where I thought one was a believer and one wasn't a believer. But I would go to the wedding of two professing non-believers. I've done two non-Christian weddings, and they both happen to be friends, people that I know. One of them was sort of a neighbor and the other one was a friend who non-believers know my faith and essentially just wanted me to do the wedding because of my relational connectedness to them. Hmm. I've said no to other weddings because they've said no to my requests. And here's my request. These are the caveats, as I say, that I am still going to do a Christian wedding, meaning that there's going to be scripture read and all that kind of stuff, not because I believe that they're both Christians, but because I believe that marriage is a Christian institution. And as long as they're okay with that, and the fact that I will preach the gospel explicitly, and if they're okay with that, I would do the wedding. In my mind, that makes complete sense. So there's nothing wrong with marriage between a man and a woman. Obviously, everything they do apart from Christ is sin then, right? That's what James tells us, Romans tells us. So the marriage there, similar to having the meal with the tax collectors and sinners, there's nothing wrong with the marriage there. Like they have a default problem internally for the two of them, but being married is still the right good thing to do in that that situation. But we're told not to be unequally yoked. So therefore it would be sinful. Like the unequally yoked couple is actually in sin. Agreed. Yeah. On the Christian side to be entering into that union. He or she is not free to do that. So therefore we can't partake in that. Right. So it would be a lie for us to go and celebrate that wedding. That's right. Just helping people practically think of, cause I actually think these are questions that come up a lot. Like my daughter is believing this and she's about to get married. Can I go to the wedding? Do I go to the wedding? It's like at some point we have to live out our convictions. Yep. And where this all ties back to the tone is all that's actually happening with the tone is you can't argue with the theology. You might disagree. This is what I think is the root of this problem. People can't argue with Joe Boots' position. Yep. They might nuance and disagree, but they just don't generally like theonomy. They don't generally like his application during COVID or whatever. People generally don't like Doug Wilson's position on eschatology how Moscow is growing. I think there's jealousy in terms of like, they're having a very big impact in in culture. Yeah. I would say disproportionately, like for the size of their church, the impact they're having on the Christian landscape and the American culture is disproportionate to their size, which is good. Exactly. Like Moscow is planting churches when SBC is closing churches. Like if you just want to use those two denominations as an example, you can't really criticize the fruit of his, of his ministry. You can't really criticize his theology other than like nitpick. So what do you have to do? Then you have to police the tone. And I would say this is where, like, to link this back to you and me, this is where, like, it's it's hilarious to me as, like, kind of, like, looking in. It's like people police your tone. Yeah. And I'm like, dude is the nicest human that's ever existed. <laughs> I criticize you sometimes, like, privately about not being toneful enough. Like, right. that, like, that is true. That's like, true, true, um, true story. But I just mean, like, because they don't know you. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, so their character 
And so, so I, I completely agree with you. I think that the tone issue is generally what people resort to when they cannot refute the arguments or the things being said. But I also think that, you know, we just had this. So I have a, I have a good friend here in the congregation. He's a younger guy that I'm discipling, and he brought somebody that he's interested in to church. And it was the first time here. And the initial reaction to the sermon that was preached was a sort of recoil, was a sort of like, ooh, that seemed harsh. Now, it happened to be Biblical Sexuality Sunday, <laughs> so that's an issue, yeah. right? So on Biblical Sexuality Sunday, we preach a, a sermon on biblical sexuality on the anniversary of Bill C-4, which is the anti-conversion therapy bill, receiving royal assent in Canada. So it's obviously a very charged Sunday. But the point is, is that I think when you are used to watered-down preaching— when you are used to nuance and points that are so caveated that they lose their entire meaning, then sometimes just clarity can come across as mean. And I think a lot of times, whether it's Doug Wilson, I put myself in this category, certainly Joe, you've met Joe many times. Joe is a very kind, warm guy, and yet he often gets accused of having a bad tone. And I think it's because when you say something clearly— without apologizing for it, it sounds mean and arrogant just because we're used to very soft words. Yeah. I would say we've been raised on effeminate teaching from effeminate fathers. Yeah. And so what happens is like, it's abrasive to us now and our feelings get hurt when somebody just speaks truth. Yeah. And so like, I look back to Obviously, we always hold up, what is the example? Our example is scripture. And there's countless examples of of Jesus saying hard things to people, and he never was unloving ever. Let's just go through some of these things. In John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, right? Here's a Pharisee, comes to Jesus under the guise of night because he's afraid of what other people are going to think. Because he's a coward, exactly. So when he comes and confronts Jesus, or talks to Jesus to ask Jesus legitimate questions, Jesus is actually a bit curt with him, right? He's like, you're a teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? I'm not talking about actually getting into your mother's womb again. (laughs) You can't discern spiritual things. Like, go and read that and just say, if somebody talked to me like that, what would I think? Even the woman at the well, which we always say, oh, look how kind and gentle Jesus is. Like, okay, he was kind in that he spoke to this this socially outcast woman, but he did say, you have five men and none of them are your husband. Yeah. Like, it's it's you, right you, that you say you don't have one. Yeah. You've had five. You've <laughs> had five. And the man you're currently with is not your husband. Yeah. It's just like, ooh, like that would have been jarring, right? Like that was not, that was not. Particularly and, in a culture where uh, like adultery is punishable by death. Exactly. And here's the other thing is like, I think things like The Chosen have done a really bad job of painting that scene for us. So like Bible commentators will say, oh, generally based on the time of the day, he was probably there alone with this woman. She probably went there to like, Middle East at this time, there aren't enough wells that the well is never, never empty, right? So this would have been Jesus publicly bringing up her sin, right? This conversation was in public. Now, he might not have been talking to the entire crowd, but he also wasn't whispering in such a way that she was the only one who heard. I would also just say, like, how do you call a group of people a brood of vipers in a loving way? How do you call them whitewashed hypocrites? How do you call them the blind leading the blind? A synagogue of Satan. A synagogue Um, of Satan, right? And those who criticize our tone will often say, ooh, that was Jesus reserving his harshest words for Pharisees. And we're not Pharisees. We're talking about brothers here. And all I would say is, like, do you not think that there were believers among the Pharisees? 
And if you say no, then what do you do with Joseph of Arimathea? He was clearly a Sanhedrin member, right? I even would say that Nicodemus likely got saved, right? So there are examples. Paul, the apostle, a Pharisee among Pharisees, right? So like my point here, even among the Judaizers who Paul reserves some harsh language for, hey, you're so happy for circumcision, go chop it all off, right? Like that's literally what he says. Elijah talking to the prophets of Baal. So where are those harshest words? They're reserved for people who are in positions of spiritual and religious authority that are leading the people astray. That's what they're reserved for. Whether they are regenerate or not, the point is those harsh words are are reserved for people in religious authority who are leading people astray. So when a pastor like Alistair Begg, and I can do the caveats, I'm a nice guy, like, like Chris just said, right? Faithful minister for 30 years, has good reformed theology, often has been given good advice. Yes, all that is yes and true. But in this particular position, he was a man of spiritual authority who gave absolutely unbiblical advice to one of his congregation members. And so we reserve our harshest language, such as, Alistair Begg, you are incredibly wrong. You're dead wrong in this, and you need to repent of that sinful advice that you gave. That's not a tone that needs to be corrected. That's just straight talk coming from a place of love, because love always works in the best interests of its object. I love Alistair Begg. Teachers are judged more harshly than those who are not teachers. He needs to repent of that bad advice so that he can be restored. So if that's a Moscow mood, then sign me up. Sign me up. (laughs) um, Yeah, I think you're brilliant because like the key piece that I think people aren't missing in all this is that we say the hard thing not to be look at me saying the hard thing. We say the hard thing because if it's truthful, you must always presuppose what you're saying is actually right and correct. But it's for love that you say that hard thing. You call Alistair Begg to repent because sin is something Jesus tells us very clearly, pluck your eye out, cut your yeah, hand off. That's you know right. I mean, like, obviously there's not a lot of people. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? It sounds pretty if harsh. If your right hand causes like, you to sin, cut it off. The mood Whoa. doesn't strike me right. <laughs> uh, but like, I'm sure, Jesus there, mood. I'm sure there was people criticizing his mood when he whipped people out of the temple. For, 100%. Uh, but like, my point is like, we don't do what the world does and soften the tone because this isn't a game. We're not playing Uno with these people. This is ultimate life or death stuff. Alistair Begg is responsible for souls that will one day be in one or two eternities for all time. Does he have the power of salvation? Absolutely not. But he can lead people astray. And that, yeah, like that's, the Bible tells us if that if that happens, it'd be better for us if a millstone was around our neck. And I'm not saying Alistair Begg isn't saved. Don't hear that. I'm saying is we're, we speak harshly to him in this situation because he's got something wrong for I, the love to rep- get him to correct this. Even in that, I would just say we are speaking in love to him, right? It might be perceived as harsh, but it's actually in love. It actually is kind, right? Because Jesus was... Kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. Therefore, it was kind for Jesus to say, you are the blind leading the blind, right? That was the kindest thing that he could say to them. Because sometimes when you say that truth, even if it is a hard truth, that's what the Spirit of God uses to convict somebody of sin and to lead them to repentance. Yeah. One of the nicest things that was ever said to me, you said to me five, like maybe six, seven years ago, it's probably longer than now with COVID, like 2016, you were like, you have too much pride. You only really love the people you like. Mm. At the time, I did not respond well to that. (laughs) But it's one of those things where it's like, okay, but that like, because the spirit's working, but like, it's a loving thing that you pointed out an error in my life that needed to be corrected. Right. I mean, so that, you know, and in that good fruit can grow. And in that moment, and you've said plenty of corrective things to me as well, but my point is like, in the moment, that's hard to hear, but 
Yeah, you I, speak I didn't accuse tr- you of love after it. But. <laughs> right. You weren't saying, man, that guy. You, it wasn't right after that that you decided I'm the nicest guy ever. <laughs> <laughs> but the Spirit of God used that. Why? Because I didn't caveat it with a million things. I just exactly. I just spoke straightly and the Spirit did its work. Yeah, exactly. And like as brothers in Christ, which I believe Alistair Begg is, is. we need to be okay to speak with tone. If you, I'm doing yeah. air quotes, you can't see it to correct the thing so that there is no mistake of what we're asking, like what we're saying you need to repent of. Exactly. I mean, like, and then if you repent of it, like we don't play this like cultural, he's gone forever game either. Yeah. We don't, we're not cancel culture, right? Yeah. There is restoration. And, and the point of rebuke is for the purposes of true restoration. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So go out and exhibit the Moscow mood. (laughs) Be here for the mood. Um, All right. We'll see you next time. Peace guys.